0: Welcome to the final episode of Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood. In this episode, you're going to hear an unedited version of the capstone discussion that I and my colleagues at Ideastream Public Media's The Sound of Ideas hosted at Happy Dog Cleveland, a bar, restaurant, and general cultural mecca in the Gordon Square neighborhood I call home. Before we get to the show, a request. Please take a couple of minutes to fill out our listener survey at ideastream.org slash Inside the Bricks. Your responses will let us know not only what you thought of this series, but will help us make more stories and host more events that you find meaningful in the future. That's ideastream.org slash inside the bricks. Now, to the happy dog. It's the sound of ideas from Ideastream Public Media here on WKSU. I'm Ideastream's Justin Glanville, and I'm coming to you from the happy dog at the corner... at the corner of West 58th Street and Detroit Avenue in Cleveland's Gordon Square Arts District for the first live, in-person Sound of Ideas community tour since before the pandemic. (laughs) Community tours reach out into the community to talk about issues important to residents. Normally, IdeaStream executive editor Mike McIntyre hosts the tours, but this event is the capstone of our podcast Inside the Bricks, my changing neighborhood, so he's given me the reins as host. So, as Mike said, the first season of Inside the Bricks was about Woodhill Homes, also known as Morris Black, a public housing neighborhood on the east side that's being rebuilt completely. And as I was wrapping up that season, you know, I was walking around my own neighborhood and realizing that while this neighborhood isn't being completely torn down and rebuilt, the changes here in a lot of ways are just as seismic. And I thought, you know, I'm really curious how my neighbors feel about that. You know, there's obviously been a lot of changes happening. Housing prices have more than tripled in the past few years, and I'm seeing a lot of flipped houses on my own street uh, going for more than half a million dollars, houses that not long ago sat vacant. And then meanwhile, as my two-year-old son always points out to me, there's always construction equipment (laughs) rumbling in the background. (laughs) Lots of new apartment buildings going up with high rents. So again, just how do my neighbors feel about that, and can the neighborhood remain a welcoming and inclusive place alongside all that development? Or is it going the way of a lot of other urban neighborhoods in the nation by becoming, well, fill in the term of your choice, gentrified, fancy, that's the one I like a lot, exclusive? And we wanted to end this season of the podcast by going out into the community and hearing from you and our audience. Tonight, we'll continue the discussion I've been engaged with throughout the podcast about the changing nature of this neighborhood. We'll hear from residents, some of whom have been here over a decade, and some who are relatively new to the area. We'll also hear from elected officials, as well as folks in the nonprofit and neighborhood development sectors. So let's get going by introducing our first panel of guests. Uh, Right here next to me is Ben Dietrich. I met Ben through the pop-up events that we held on Wednesdays after the podcast would drop, and he shared a really compelling story um, with me about his uh, experiences here. Ben's lived in the neighborhood about eight years after retiring early from a career in manufacturing sales. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Next to Ben is Chandria Simmons. She's a resident of Gordon Square and also the owner of Shea Culinary Services, a vegan, yay, personal chef, and catering business. Welcome, Chandria. And finally, a face I'm sure is familiar to a lot of you, Raymond Bobgan. He's, he's a resident of the nearby Kudel neighborhood, and he's also the Executive Artistic Director of Cleveland Public Theater. Um, yeah, yes. Founded in 1981 and has had a permanent home in the building since 1984. Raymond, thanks for being here. Yeah, Thank you. So Raymond, I'd like to start with you. Um, you've had a front seat view Um, I just, I actually did just realize that's a theater pun. I did not mean that. Um, a front seat view of the neighborhood for a long time now. And you said something to me the other day when we were talking on the phone that really struck me, which is that when you step outside Cleveland Public Theater now, you see the same people that you saw when you first moved in. When back then, 30 years ago, you would kind of just pass each other by without, talking. And now you do talk to each other and say hello. So I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about that? And what do you think that shift is a result of?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as a theater artist, I'm a, I'm a listener, I'm an observer, I love connecting with people. And, uh, you know, before I used to walk to work from 76 in Colgate. Um, it was kind of a scary walk during some sometimes and you know it was pretty much walking by boarded up buildings and you know it was was not a safe place and although we saw i saw a lot of people it was like we didn't say hi you know we were kind of don't talk to me and i remember at, at some point there was a moment in which i saw I started noticing people were looking up and saying hi to me. And uh, we had a visitor from uh, Chechnya, actually, who was here. And she said, I think I look like someone who lives here because everyone keeps saying hi to me. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that's this neighborhood now. It's really
0: beautiful. It's awesome. Chandria, you moved to the neighborhood three years ago and have been running your business here uh, with personal clients as well as doing pop-up events at coffee shops and so on. Can you tell us a bit about your decision to, to move here and locate your business here?
2: So, when I originally moved here, I wasn't really familiar with Gordon Square. I frequented the businesses, but I didn't know it was actually called Gordon Square. I'm just like, oh, Brew Nuts. That, I just knew this area for Brew Nuts <laughs> and Happy Dog. So, when I moved my business here, I didn't think of it as a place that it would actually thrive. I just moved here because it was, the lake was there, Brew Nuts was down the street, and (laughs) that is the reasons that I moved here. (laughs) Okay,
0: great. You shared with me that you love the neighborhood, especially being able to run to Edgewater Park because you're so close by, Um, but you've also had some concerns about the changes you've seen even just in the time you've been here and you talked about uh, this concept that you coined of gentrification gray. Can you talk a little bit about all that?
2: Yes. so... I just you know when these new construction buildings come up you're 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 curious as to what they'll look like and you see the brick go up and you're like oh that brick is gorgeous and then they sp- spray it they paint it with this gray color and that's it's the same on I I'm trying to remember. I think it's 58th in Herman, and then it's the same color on the 70th and <laughs> that 70th in Detroit. It's the same color, so that's where I kind of got that term from. Because I'll run in a neighborhood and I'll see that same color reiterated. You know, the our streets are so lively. The colors, they're all all of our houses look different, and they're all different colors. And then you see this as I call it, the gentrified charcoal color on all of these buildings.
0: And Reman, that kind of reminded me a little bit of a conversation you and I had about historic facades and maybe yeah. some of the messages that, that go there too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, oh, that's an interesting place to go. I was not expecting <laughs> that. I, I think there's a, there's a real concern, I think, that, that we have about our neighborhood in, in that there's, there's a lot of restrictions As we look at Cleveland Public Theater, this incredibly welcoming place, a place that is meant to be inviting, a place that is, uh, you know, a majority of the artists who work at Cleveland Public Theater are black, indigenous, and people of color. And, And this is a place where community can really come together. And yet we're constantly limited by this idea of preservation. And although we certainly don't want to be in the gray, there's also this question of like, oh, we need it to look like the past. And I'm sitting here going, yeah, the past is predominantly a European immigration past. And is that really what we want to restrict ourselves to? And when we think about who we want to have living in this neighborhood and working in this neighborhood and sharing their life stories in this neighborhood, I don't know if that's really the direction we want to be going in. I think there's a lot of erasure that happens. Um, of communities I mean even here like Gordon Square wouldn't even be a topic of this conversation if it weren't for the Gordon Square Arts District but in the conversation we just constantly see artists are erased I mean even in this podcast I'm not sure how many artists were really front and center and the you know the special guests or the featured people in this podcast and yet it's really the sacrifice of so many artists who came here worked for very little and, and really, a lot of their stories have been erased. And this would not even be the Gordon Square neighborhood or the Gordon Square Arts District if it weren't people like James Levin. And although we had an amazing team, yeah. Although we had an amazing team that made Gordon Square happen financially, you know, these incredible leaders and donors and people like, you know, Matt Zone, who's here, who really made it happen and were great team members. The team wouldn't have existed if it weren't for the sacrifice of James Levin, who has been virtually erased. And and I just wonder, like, when we look to the future and we want to keep that purity of our neighborhood and we want to keep this a diverse place, we want to keep this authenticity, I think the way to do that is to keep the investment in the arts.
0: Yes.
3: Mm. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <laughs> let me let me bring uh, Ben into the conversation. So Ben, you you had lived in the suburbs uh, before moving here. I'm wondering what what drew. Can you share a little bit about what drew you to move to the neighborhood?
4: Well, I had um, pretty much always been a suburban kid. I grew up in Berea. Then I went to the University of Akron. I went to school. Then I lived in Cuyahoga Falls for many years. And then I moved to Medina. And that ended up being nothing like I thought it was going to be. And I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis move, but I had reached a point where I decided if I was ever going to have an urban lifestyle and try living uh, that walkable, bikeable, near a downtown lifestyle i had to do it now i I couldn't wait any longer so uh it was eight and a half years ago when i moved here and i originally looked at tremont and ohio city when i was trying to find a place because i i completely cleaned out my entire life i mean i i sold my home i got rid of most of my belongings i ended up in a one bedroom one bath apartment here and i thought it was going to be such a difficult decision and such a difficult thing to go through and it actually was probably one of the best things i ever did in my life when you realize that you don't have to have like Everything materialistic and a house full of stuff that you never use, um, but it's just been um, it's been an interesting journey. And um, even in the time I've been here, I'm 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 really quite surprised and sometimes taken back by what's happening here. And um, sometimes I'm not so happy about it. Sometimes I still am really thrilled to be a part of this community. And Ben, you know, you you also
0: shared with me that you, one of the three units in your building. Um, your landlord let you know that he was gonna be raising the rent quite substantially um for the new person who moved in and you were saying it it kind of almost felt like he was giving you a little bit of a warning sign. Can you can you share a little bit about
4: that and, and just what messages well, I've got a sort of an interesting situation going on. My landlord actually lives in Cincinnati, and he um, he's, <laughs> he's sort of a hands-off person, and he acquired a building in this neighborhood that had been a part of his family for many years and had been vacant for many years, and then it came back on the market, and he was able to buy, buy the property. So he renovated it. I was one of the first tenants to move in um, after it had been renovated, but he's very well aware of what's happening in this neighborhood, and... I've always sort of been his unofficial building manager, so when a unit comes available, I'll show it to people. I'll give him feedback and let him know that I'm showing the unit. If something needs fixed in one of the other units, I'll meet the repair people. So he's always given me a little bit of a break on the rent, which has been super appreciative because I'm, on, I'm sort of on a flip side of being on a fixed income now because I'm, I retired early, but I've also lived a very frugal lifestyle. So I saved enough money to the point where I knew I could do this, but if my rent goes up to what is considered market rate, Now, in this neighborhood, I can't afford to live here anymore. But he told me when the last time a tenant moved out that the other one-bedroom unit was going to be going up an additional
3: $500.
4: (laughs) Okay, so, no,
0: really, though, I'd love to hear like folks who either think who kind of have stories like Ben's or just stories unlike Ben's. We want to hear all of what you've been experiencing, too. Raymond, let let me come back to you. You've um, described Cleveland Public Theater as a, an organization that has been always rooted in community. And as the neighborhood has changed, and I, I know from our conversations that you feel like a, a lot of the change here has been really positive. But I'm just wondering, like, as the neighborhood has changed, have you had to change your approach in terms of engaging the audiences that you want to reach or creating projects that you want to reach are you having to reach yeah. out into the community more proactively?
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting. I think when I started as the leader at CPT, our number one zip code, the ten people who were attending CPT, was Cleveland Heights, and probably the number two was Shaker Heights. And today, it's four four one zero two. And 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 also, you know, when you look when you look at like who's coming in to see plays at CPT, are, these audiences look like Cleveland. And so when I'm thinking about who's coming into CPT, I might not actually, sorry, I might not be thinking about this room of people. I'm really thinking about the people who live inside the city limits and who want to come and see things that are going to touch their lives and be essential to them. So, I mean, for us, what does that mean? It means we made all of our tickets choose what you pay. Like, we used to have this, like, pay what you can policy on the side, but it really is different when it's like, you don't have to go to the side for a pay what you can. Everyone's choose what you pay. And, and so that would be one of the approaches. And again, it's what whose stories are we telling? And that's just the question over and over again. We have this um, you know, really uh, big Latinx community here, predominantly Puerto Rican, and that's why we founded Teatro Público de Cleveland. Um, and, uh, and also a really large a community who are from the Middle East, uh, especially if you get a little bit farther to the West. But here's this huge community that is um, of different people from Middle East and North Africa who don't have anywhere to hear their language spoken. And so that's why we started Masra Kleven al-Arabi. So when we're thinking about this, we're both... When we're thinking about this, we're thinking about it both, in, you know, in a broad sense of these kind of broad initiatives, but also really focusing in on whose stories need to be told and what are the
0: deficits in our storytelling. And Chandria, I'm wondering as a business person, you know, how how important is it for you to live in a neighborhood that is, you know, booming or up and coming or perceived as up and coming? Like is that something that you that goes into your considerations about where to locate?
2: So, I mean, as a black person, <laughs> what goes into me choosing a house. I don't really think about like how my business is going to go. My number one priority is if I run, can I run here? Can, is there, is this somewhere where am I going to be, I mean, I I think everyone knows who Ahmad is. Like he was gunned down for running. So I have to think about that. I have to think about can I walk to the store the same way I see people walking their dogs? Can I do that? Can I do that in the hood? Can I? So I have that's my number one priority. So while I while my business is an extension of me, I my number one priority is. Will I feel safe
0: and and how how are you feeling about that three years in? um I know when we were talking, you were saying maybe you see fewer people who are obviously in the LGbt community for example in the in the past like after a few years here what's what's the sort of trajectory that you've been noticing
2: so I feel like it's always kind of looked like this room where it looks as though there's more like white people than anything, <laughs> and there's just a few spots of black people or even i mean well my view is black my life is black my experiences are black so i am looking for black people so while i love my people of color i'm looking for the black people where are we are we showing up in these spaces are we where i don't see that if we're talking about gentrification and there's barely anybody that looks like me or just like cpt there's telling these stories and there and there's it's not just white people that live in this neighborhood. So when we ha- when we show up to have these conversations, why are there only a sprinkle of people? And I get that, you know, it could be really unwelcoming. If I came to that door and you and I'm, and I'm in a mindset where I see all these people here, I might not feel safe in here. If I was on this panel, I maybe I wouldn't even feel safe here. If I wasn't with a group of people, maybe I wouldn't feel safe. So I think that's important to highlight.
4: Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say something real quick too, if I could. Um, Just in the time that I've lived here, and I, you know, I'm I'm speaking as a as a white male, which makes me feel, you know, stupid sometimes. But um, even where I live in my little neighborhood uh, north of Herman. in the eight and a half years that I've lived there, I've seen a, a transition of people. I mean, there used to be Spanish-speaking people in my on my street, and there used to be people that had been there 17, 20 years or more, and they're all gone. And they would come over and talk to me, and we, even if I couldn't speak Spanish, we would we would talk about flowers, and I would tell her her flowers are beautiful, and she would tell me my flowers were so nice. And now, just in the in the last you know few years, now I'm seeing people driving by in their very expensive Audi SUVs and no, and people used to wave you know, I'd be walking or working in my yard and people would wave out their cars or beep their horn. Now people are just barreling down the street to get to their half million dollar condo and then they get in their house and they come out in their nice little designer clothes and they walk their little designer dog and they don't talk to you, they just walk right past you and, I, and that's in eight and a half years that I've seen that transition and that's not why I moved here. I had that in Medina and I wanted to get away from that. <laughs>
0: Okay, so we have, we have our first audience question. Thank you for yeah, I, I I would, I breaking would, uh, the ice. Breaking
5: yeah. the ice, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I thought something that the podcast did that was, was really nice was sort of looked at the, the pluses and minuses of development, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I feel like we haven't, we haven't gotten that direction yet. It, it, I think it's easy to start out with the bad things. The bad things are obvious, right? But I, I wondered if, if people could comment on, I don't want to say the positives, but I guess I guess the positives, because if you look at who are the, the patrons of the arts or the patrons of businesses or the people who are redeveloping businesses, you know, it's, it's two sides of one coin, so. Raymond,
1: yeah. I, I mean, I think there's so much positive things happening in the neighborhood. I think, you know, last night at Cleveland Public Theater for a closing night and just sitting there in a the house and knowing about half of those people are from from this neighborhood directly and seeing people that I know it's just really it's really touching I mean that's really the point of arts is to bring people together and I would also say you know we need development in our city or we damn ourselves to the ongoing horrible maintenance of our streets it's just hard for the city to maintain we don't have enough taxes coming in and we we're we're Um, continuing to battle for better schooling for the children who live here. So we do need greater investment, but it's one thing when that investment is in an old factory or an old battery plant, and another thing when it's actually changing the character and the nature of the neighborhood. And I think when we talk about gentrification, we're not just talking about displacement, we're talking about changing the character of the the neighborhood. You know, this could be a place, when we think about positivity, this could be a place where if these people who are here right now said, we don't want that to happen, and we're going to get activated as allies around that not happening, and we're gonna make sure that the arts are at the center of our neighborhood, then we could see something really positive, and I think really nationally important. Because I expect better from Cleveland, I really do. All
0: right, well, it is time now for us to take a quick break, Uh, but I first wanna thank our first panel of guests, uh, Chandria Simmons of Shea Culinary Services, and a resident of the neighborhood, thanks so much. Ben Dietrich, resident of the neighborhood, thank you so much. And Raymond Bobgan of Cleveland Public Theater, thank you, Raymond. So next we're going to hear three new guests, all closely involved and invested in the Detroit Shoreway community. Coming to you from the Happy Dog in Cleveland's Gordon Square neighborhood, this is the Sound of Ideas community tour. I'm Justin Glanville. We'll be right back. All right, you are with the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Justin Glanville, here with a live audience at the Happy Dog. for (laughs) For the return of the Sound of Ideas community tour. Today we're capping off our Inside the Bricks My Changing Neighborhood series, which looked at the changing nature of the Gordon Square neighborhood here on Cleveland's West Side. Time now to introduce our next panel. Joining me now are... Jenny's councilperson Jenny Spencer. She's the councilperson for Ward 15. And Jenny was someone we heard from multiple times throughout the podcast. Um also here is Tanya Maness She's the president and CEO of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, which is a nonprofit focused on equitable revitalization. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us. And Bradford Davy joins us. He's Chief Strategy Officer for the City of Cleveland and a member of Mayor Justin Bibb's Cabinet. Bradford, thanks so much for being with us today. All right, so Jenny, it's hard to believe, but you and I took our first walk related to this podcast over a year ago. It was very wintry, and we were walking on ice and doing all that fun stuff. One thing you said during that interview has really stuck with me is that you believe we are our best selves when we live in diverse communities around people who aren't just like us. And that's why you're so focused on keeping Ward 15 an affordable and diverse place, um, an accessible place for everyone. Where do you think we are in the neighborhood now in terms of keeping it a place where everyone can afford to live and feel welcome?
6: Justin, it's so good to be with you. This is wonderful. I think what Chandra said on the last panel is really sitting with me. You know, she's looking at it. And by the way, you all are beautiful. I love this view. <laughs> but she's looking out at the, at the um, room, and it looks a bit like our neighborhood, but not not totally, right? It doesn't really reflect the diversity of who we are. And I think part of being and becoming, continuing to become the community we want to be is surfacing that and naming it, right? Not... Um, when we see it, we, let's talk about it. Let's let's be together in that and explore that together, even if it makes us uncomfortable. And so I think I want to answer with a couple of things. And one is sort of the um, intangible. Uh, you talked, Justin, very, I thought, eloquently at the end of the last episode about your journey. And you you asked yourself the question of, if I hadn't done this podcast, would I have gotten to know my neighbors? If I hadn't Sort of had that that context and that push to do it. Would I have spent the time getting to know my neighbors, and will I keep doing it? And I think you will. I think you will. But I think all of us who love this community and live here, I think you know, an easy place to start is is asking ourselves, do we know our neighbor? I mean, do we know our neighbors? Look you know, look around in your block, and if you don't, you know, neighboring or building community, especially across difference. So building affordable housing is is very expensive, right? It, it costs a lot of money to construct something or to renovate something. Um, but neighboring and getting to know people in an authentic way doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It can be very simple. But I think we have to really be mindful of that, and we have to really... I'm going to tell one more quick story before I pass it off, yeah. which is there might be a couple neighbors here from uh, West 71st Street, south of Franklin. That's a block from where I live. And if I could pick one street in this entire ward that I wish... The the entire word could become, it's West 71st, South of of Franklin. It has racial diversity, for sure, um, income diversity, age diversity, families, individuals, religious diversity. And they all know each other. Everyone on that block knows each other. And as one example, first of all, they do not call the police on each other. (laughs) You know, if there's a noise disturbance or something is going on, they do not call the police on each other because they know each other. I mean, this is intangible. This does not cost anything. It is so critical. It is so critical for us to become the community we are called to be. And then as another example, you know, networks, like economic networks. So they know each other. A lot of times we get a hand up in life because we happen to know someone who knows someone who happens to be connected to an opportunity. I and mean, so when a kid on that block, let's say a kid is looking for a job, the word goes out to the neighbors and the, and the network elevates that need. And so, to me, the, the story of that one street is the story of who I think uh, we wanna continue to be as we're, as we're building our community together.
0: Bradford, when I called you uh, about participating on this panel, you said, good timing. <laughs> I'm actually. I just bought and moved into yeah. a house and moved into the neighborhood. Um, <laughs> so before I kind of get to your sort of wearing your more official city hat, can can you talk a little bit about what drew you to to the neighborhood to move here? Sure. Yeah.
7: Uh, it's great to be with all of you. Um, you know, the the decision for us was actually pretty easy. We had uh, a close friend who uh, his wife got into medical school and really quickly needed to sell their home. So they called us and said, hey, we're getting rid of the spot. And uh, luckily we had been thinking about uh, a new home and putting down roots somewhere for some time. And so it was easy. We had spent a lot of time in the house, in the backyard, having dinner, having drinks. Um, and so it was important for us to carry on the sort of legacy and the heritage of the home. And so uh, as a first time homebuyer, I am just really thrilled to be settled in a place um, that feels uh, so connected and deeply rooted uh, on, on the first Two or three days of home ownership, we were trying to like, struggle to put out the the trash bins, and it's missing a it's missing a wheel, and we don't know when they go out. And one of our neighbors uh, crosses the street, and she just like has this piece of paper, and she hands it to us, and, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the trash schedule. Uh, you know, and as a, as a member of Mayor Bibb's cabinet, I should probably, uh, you know, know when, when every street gets picked up, but, uh, you know, it was, it was just, uh, it was this really unique moment that made us feel at home, and uh, that gave us a lot of peace in our decision.
0: Tanya, you lead an organization, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, whose mission is to as i said in the intro equitable revitalization of neighborhoods and i was wondering if you could just share a little bit about you know what what does equitable revitalization look like
8: sure Uh, thanks very much and really appreciate the opportunity to be part of this i followed the woodhill choice uh process and just uh, it's an honor to be part of this one as well um you know, I think the rest of that mission is the equitable revitalization of neighborhoods through strengthening the community development ecosystem. And what that means to us, our theory of change, is that there are community development corporations in um, every neighborhood in Cleveland. And Northwest Neighborhoods here uh, uh, represent so many of you. I was going to say there there are a lot of folks in the audience. And um, it's really those organizations that we believe you know, really help articulate what is important to current residents, right, who really ensure or try to work with you to ensure that the development that happens in your neighborhood is for the people in the neighborhood, does take into consideration what's happening there, does have the opportunity over time to own buildings on the commercial district so that businesses can come in and keep that diversity, keep that interest that really drew you to the neighborhood. Uh, equitable revitalization really means that you're bringing in new development, you're bringing in that income tax that um, you know people talked about to uh, prepare roads, but it doesn't have to be at the loss of what really made the neighborhood the interesting community place that you chose it for.
0: Okay, so let's see. Sean has been patiently waiting to ask his question. Sean Watterson, go ahead. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. I, it may
9: be more comment than question, and it, it may be too. One, Jenny, you, you mentioned age diversity, and, and I was sitting here in the first part and, and just thinking about the other colors, and one of those is gray in the neighborhood, and we have folks who, who are... Core to the neighborhood, and would love to be able to have them age in place. That's one I'm uh, The other is, I think we can we can solve these problems. We have we don't have to look at this as an insolvable problem. We've got we've got connection, which is the most important thing. We've got we Jenny, we've got you in our council seat. We've got we still got Matt Zone in the neighborhood yeah. working at thriving communities there are things we can do with cultural land trusts and through thriving communities to preserve uh, some of the some of the space that that people are occupying that that have helped to build the neighborhood while we're developing i see this as a music venue owner i see this in cities like austin and nashville and san francisco where Uh, gentrification has wiped out culture but I I see we are in a place where we say gentrification it means nothing compared to what New York and and these other places are we have an opportunity to solve these problems while we can afford to solve these problems and I think we can do that as long as we all stay connected one of my favorite events every year is the spaghetti dinner (laughs) over at Mount Carmel because it brings the entire neighborhood together so I just I just wanted to put it out there. I know gentrification can can raise all sorts of important issues, but one of the things that we have is connectivity and and a willingness to take on these problems, and and I hope that we do that.
6: So
8: I I think you just hit the nail on the head, right? We are a community, um, and and some of the challenges that Cleveland has, right, is that there are very few neighborhoods that are frankly dealing with the issues that this neighborhood is dealing with. There are very few places in our city that are seeing property values increase and are seeing these pressures. But the positive is that, as you said, there is land available. There are homes that could be rehabbed. If you rehab homes, they are generally naturally occurring affordable homes. It really does allow people to stay in the community. And um, so much of what you're talking about is keeping the cultural nature of the community alive. And that is very much, as Jenny said, in the control of the community. And it is in welcoming new people into the community, like Bradford, and, and having him and his uh, wife and family you know, understand what makes this community important. And I think that can really happen.
0: Go ahead, Jenny, yeah.
6: Yeah, Sean, that was so much to think about. Thank you. Um, I do want to briefly speak to uh, the aging in place piece because that's been a passion of mine for a long time. But real quickly, you mentioned the spaghetti dinners that those really, you know, like a lot of things, we lost a tradition with COVID. I just want to give a quick shout out. There is an amazing woman named Maria Belmonte, who, if you ever went to one of those spaghetti dinners at Our Lady of Mount Carmel, she was the behind the scenes chef, the best meatballs on the planet, on the planet. And she has just passed. We we lost Maria. So quick round of applause for Maria's family. Maria. She, uh, once you met her, you never forgot her. But on the aging and place piece, you know, I've been so interested in that question for, for a long time in our neighborhood, and that's be- through anecdotal, through just those one-off conversations, and it had to do with has to do with our, our historic housing stock that we've had that we all inherited. A lot of it is not conducive to mobility, right? A lot of it had the house I first lived in had one bathroom on the second floor. And then the stuff that's being built. And subsidized through tax abatement um, is oftentimes townhomes. And Mark Matern, who's here and the audience, um, I thought was terrific in the podcast. Uh, very, very professorial and wonderful in the podcast. <laughs> and um, you know, Mark, one of your comments kind of was a side comment, but it broke my heart. You know, you you live in Battery Park, you love it. There actually is community there. It's they're not a monolith of um, I don't know anyone who has an Audi there, but luckily, not yet, <laughs> but um, Anyway, so they, it's a wonderful community there, and there's so many reasons to stay, and there's intentional community building. But you kind of made this one-off comment. I don't know if my knees will allow me to stay in a townhome forever. So it is a fact. And oh, my gosh, I'm so glad we have Chief Davy right here so you can tell the mayor we talked about it tonight. Uh, it is a fact that we need mobility-friendly housing in the city of Cleveland. We need more of it. Um, and... And one other thing I'll say about it is that I think of it as not necessarily, I call it aging in place housing, but it's really everybody housing. Some of the uh, 60 lease purchase homes that were just built in our neighborhoods recently, um, a handful of those are first floor. I wish we'd done more that were first floor. But guess what? Families live in them. Anyone can live in them. There's still three-bedroom, two-bath homes. They just are on a single story. Um, That's a major public policy initiative that we have to carry forward in Cleveland.
0: Well, we got some questions lined up, so I want to make sure we get to these. So, go ahead, ma'am. What's what's your I, comment I or have question? A
3: question. I yeah. just have a statement. When you first started this pod, podcast a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. I was like, "Who was this young boy in <laughs> the Jets?" You know, if Morris Black. I I didn't get it, but as it continued and the community and Morris Black was responsive to you, I said, "Well, he has something. You know, he's hitting on something." And then as the podcast continued, I'm looking in the neighborhood I work in, I'm looking in the neighborhood I live in, and you can see it, whether it's gentrification or new housing. And, you know, the market for those houses are going up, so that makes your house value goes down, because you're looking at these people like, why are you even here? You weren't here. And you brought that to our attention, which I really applaud you for that. And I just want to thank you, because at first... It's you know, your voice was kinda hesitant because you were in more black. <laughs> you know, and then as the podcast got going, you got more comfortable <laughs> and see now you ain't going Square, you at home. Right, <laughs> right. So exactly. You real
0: thank you so much for that. So I've... you
3: did a great job. Thank you so much. Thank you,
0: yes. ma'am.
10: Yeah, thank you. Hi. I'm Mitzi Wagner, and I live on West 38th Street, a quarter of a block south of Detroit. So I'm not a Detroit Shoreway, Gordon Square person, but I am probably the last living person who lives on the near west side, which is what I still call it. Um, I came here 53 years ago as an idealistic 25-year-old person um, who wanted to do something about... um, racism, poverty, and social justice in general, and I joined a group of people who came in 1969 from various suburbs with the same motive. My reason for speaking up now is really in relation to Raymond Bodgin's statement about erasure and James Levin. I would hope that the history of these idealistic people who came in their 20s and 30s and 40s hoping to change things will also become a part of the history of what has happened. I've always had this cynical belief (laughs) that by our arrival, as a group of maybe 20 and growing to 30 and maybe 40 people, we opened up the neighborhood for some of the gentrification that occurred in many ways because we became people who lived here and so other people thought, oh, we can live there, that looks good. And I'm sorry for that. Um, But I just wanted to put in a word for this group of people. The formal name of the group of people when they first arrived was the Thomas Merton Community, although that has evolved into many other things and many other people. So I just wanted to speak about that particular piece of um, Near West Side history. (laughs) Thank you,
0: Missy. Bradford, let me get back to you and, and feel free to comment on anything. But I also wondered if you could work in there, you know, just from the city's perspective. You know, when you when you look at a neighborhood like Detroit, or Gordon Square, you know, how do you feel? Do you feel that the development has gotten out of hand, uh, that folks are getting displaced? Is, it, is this a place where the city sees concern or are you feeling like it's still a healthy level?
7: Yeah, sure. So first, let me just respond to Mitzi to yeah. Mitzi anyone who occupies a space with the intention of true neighborhood engagement and inclusivity a place that you want to see grow and to love your neighbors you shouldn't apologize for it so um, you know, thank you thank you for your longtime commitment to this city. Um, you know, from a from a policy perspective, I think there's a few things that we would want to say. You know, we, we are seeing the types of development that have been described here in a couple of different ways, right? The senior living facility on um, West 80th Street, 51 new construction units, senior living affordable. The same thing with Aspen Place where we're thinking about that along TOD lines so uh, we can think about the longevity and the inclusivity of these projects. I think it's really important to just acknowledge that the city of Cleveland has a sites problem, very clearly. Like the city of Cleveland has a sites problem, and it metastasizes itself in a couple of different ways. We have over somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand parcels in our land bank. We have corridors that need activation. Uh, we have thousands of sites requiring demolition, and we have a housing stock that was built before 1979, about 87% of those, right? So we, we, have a, we have a sites problem. And when we think about where development is, is really happening, you would, be, you would be really hard pressed to find um, a development project in, in Ward 15 that, that demolished homes, viable, viable homes, right? So we're utilizing land. And so if I was to say anything about the city of Cleveland and Mayor Bibb's administration's the ethos, it would be that the ethos is really putting assets to work. We have assets that are currently not being put to work, and they need to be put to productive use. The way in which we activate those assets is is a policy choice and a values choice and a moral choice. And I think that we're demonstrating in a real way that we're trying to make the right moral choice, one that we hope would make Mitzi proud. I just might... Only add to, to the tax abatement policy. While we uh, we recognize that it has been in modest, you know, it has it has been a step in the right direction to start to identify the market conditions that um, you know are unique to each to each neighborhood. Um, and so we really are putting our best foot forward about the activation of spaces. Go ahead, jania yeah.
6: Can I chime in on what Chief Davy was sharing? Thank you so much. So a couple of the, I need to shout out uh, Northwest Neighborhoods because a, um, couple, the, the two projects that Chief Davy mentioned, he mentioned the Senior Living Building that will be built at 80th in Detroit and Aspen Place, those are owned and managed by Northwest Neighborhoods. And um, one thing that's so critical in terms of diversity and affordability, the, very, the most af- valuable affordable housing unit is the one that already exists. <laughs> So it is so critical to preserve existing affordable housing. So I want to share, for those of you who haven't heard the story, many of you have, Northwest Neighborhoods owns over 300 affordable housing units, most of which are within two blocks of where we're sitting. And that is intentional. They could have, after the initial low-income housing tax credit period, they could have converted those to market rate and chose not to. And I will say that, yes, it's really important. so, again, preserving and protecting that affordable housing um, is critical, and it, and it does need subsidies. So we've we got to talk – at some point I want to talk about money because we got to talk <laughs> about cash. We need big money to get – we want, We need to get in, infuse investment oh, in that. Oh, Bradford money. has something and, to say about and, that. Okay. And, oh, but one more quick story <laughs> to share is um, another example is um, of a collaboration uh, now between um, council and in, in the mayor's administration is the Watterson Lake school site. So another uh, story in there is – you got to grab any affordable housing opportunities that come up. So, do, you know, that is a site that is unique because it will be vacant public land, and it is my full expectation that it will not be market-rate housing because we have. It's a balance, yeah. So, um, I, I'm excited to work with uh, the mayor's administration on the Watterson Lake site and make. You know, that will also contribute to this um, the diversity we seek in our community.
7: Bradford, go ahead. What yeah, we let's talk money. So uh, I, I, I know Councilwoman Spencer uh, shares my, my commitment to this. The the city of Cleveland has a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation infusion of capital through the American Rescue Plan, right? And so we're just talking a little bit about how um, the mayor, in collaboration with councils, is advancing some of the existing housing stock questions, right? So $10 million to create a network of grants and deferred loans for home repair, right? Critical, critical. Housing Gap Fund of about million to provide grants and equity stakes in projects that think about affordability and uh, market rate. And then a developer acquisition fund at $5 million really aimed at helping local developers critical through line there, local developers, uh, to rehab structures and really compete with some of those national and out-of-state investors that it is just simply so hard to hold accountable. And so, you know, this is a real way when we think about what equity and action means, really trying to put money forward on the forefront to preserve that uh, naturally occurring uh, affordable housing through the the projects and the homes that already exist here in this neighborhood.
8: Those incentives are what development... Needs to happen in other parts of the city, so when the tax abatement policy came through, and so many people said, "Oh well, tax abatement alone is not going to change whether people invest in other parts of the city. Well, a change in the tax abatement policy and these very necessary incentives are what make people say, You know what? I will think about uh, investing in other parts of the city that's that 's critically important. The other thing I just want to mention because it 's been really important is as the focus groups came through for the tax abatement study initially in 2020 one of the things that really surfaced in this neighborhood and in so many others was not that people didn't want in development what they wanted though was to be able to protect their homes and they wanted to ensure that there were dollars for them to repair their homes to invest in their homes but most importantly if property values went up which you know generally is a good thing that the increase in property values didn't didn't price people out of their homes because their property taxes went up. And one of the things that we heard, we heard that consistently. That was the biggest issue that came from this neighborhood. And so one of the initiatives that we are all moving forward is enabling legislation at the state that will allow for property tax relief. That's a really critical first step. The city and the county cannot take steps to ensure that property taxes don't increase at an exorbitant rate unless the state enables that legislation. And we have a coalition from Cleveland and from across the state, which is critical if you want to make a change at the state level, that's moving forward. And it it is um, feeling pretty promising that the the state may take up that legislation next year.
0: Absolutely. Property taxes are... Let's, let's go ahead. I'm told we have a billion questions, so let's go.
11: <laughs> Hi, my name is Kevin Morta. I just moved here next block over with my fiance Dominic. I'm actually going to go off the question you guys were going on because tax abatements are great. However, it draws people in who are making close to six figures living in $500,000 homes. And you were speaking about rehabbing the current homes. Nine times out of 10, in order to do that, residents need to have at least a 680 credit score, and they at least need to have a 3 to 5% down saving. So my question to you is, what can the city do to, in turn, help the citizens of the community who have been in the community? Unfortunately, nine times out of 10, people who have a low credit score, it's due to like a medical debt or something that they weren't even aware of. So what is the city gonna do in order to help the community of Gordon Square keep the residents of Gordon Square in without bringing everyone who makes over 150,000 in a blink of an eye?
6: Chief Davy mentioned, thank you for that great question. Chief Davy referenced um, the American Rescue Plan Act and Cleveland got, is, was five, 511, 511 million, Um, American Rescue Plan Act dollars and so far we have so far we have about 50 million that's been allocated for housing and um, Chief Davy, I'm gonna be the Community Development Director's best friend because I'm gonna advocate even if she doesn't want me to for for more money maybe she does but I mean for more money into housing because I think the 10 million that Chief Davy referenced for home repair grants and loans the goal is to leverage that the goal is to attract additional funds to get housing, to get support for home rehab, but I'd like to see an even bigger proportion of American Rescue Plan Act go to housing. So that's where I stand on that issue.
7: Bradford, yeah, yeah and I appreciate the advocacy. I think, on it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, but I think that the the important through line there is is also leverage. So we we can. We can use this one time infusion, right? Limited capital when we aren't getting back. And we're thinking about this through through grant parameters. So that means it's not coming back to us. There's gonna be no return. The, the the thing that we need to be doing is focusing on that leverage part of the conversation. What are our what are our corporate partners and what are our banking partners doing to help us leverage that capital in a way that allows us to utilize that money and reinvest that money in the long term? And so while I, I respect the need for increased focus on, on housing, I would offer that you know it, it is not just the city alone. It is our it is our corporate partners and is our partners across the city and our national folks, too, who have an invested interest in, uh, you know, seeing this neighborhood grow and people uh, have the opportunity to, to to, really repair their homes in ways that um, keeps them here for the long term. Okay, let's let's get to another comment
0: or question. Hi.
5: Hey there. Uh, <laughs> my name is Adam Rosen. I live on Seattle. West 59th, right around the corner. I, I wrote a question actually in advance, listening to your podcast, um, because it really touched a lot of chords within my career, my resident status in the neighborhood, and I wanted to to bring it to all of you. Um, And I see a lot of people here tonight who are energized uh, about gentrification and convinced it's a bad thing, and it's a sexy topic for activism. And there are a lot of issues facing our city, and I'm not breaking news to any of you. Um, Spread of concentrated urban poverty, um, challenges of neighborhood abandonment, small business owners facing an era of disruption in digital uh, and online uh, business, and all the other racial and economic uh, chasm that this, this city has. This is not unique to Cleveland, it's, it's like my hometown in Akron, it's all across the Rust Belt. And let's be honest, these are big, messy, complicated problems, they're intractable, and there's really nothing sexy about them. And they don't lend themselves to podcasts or slogans, Uh, like, your community is not my commodity. And most people would rather not think about them. And it's because the average person can't do anything about them. It requires systemic change. And these are urban problems that we're all facing, right? This This is not unique to us. They're existential in a lot of ways. New development does not always mean displacement. And revitalization is not a synonym for gentrification. So my question is this, has gentrification become a useless word, and is it time to retire the word due to its loss of an agreed-upon meaning?
8: (laughs) Adam, now I understand why you wrote it down. (laughs) And uh, and I... And I don't know about you, but I think the, this podcast and this conversation is very sexy and exciting. But that is also a comment probably on, on my life. Uh, I, I think that it is, I think what you highlighted is, is so important. And it's why I keep coming back to why we need to look at this as holistically in our city. Is that the best thing we can do for Gordon Square and for this neighborhood is have people want to invest in other parts of our city. The, what Bradford just talked about in terms of leveraging the American Rescue Plan funds and why it's so important that we do this in a way that many of our other neighborhoods start to see revitalization is because that will balance out what is is very imbalanced right now. And I think the reason why the term really needs to be retired, especially in a community like ours, is that this isn't happening to us, right? I think we all have an ability to ensure that the way our neighborhoods are revitalized are partly within, and I say partly, within our purview, right? We have very strong neighborhood development corporations that we support that can hold land, that can ensure that there is there are businesses coming into the community that represent the community and that add to the color of the community. We have 20,000 parcels in our city that need to be developed and then I think it's where we started from, from a cultural standpoint, is it is so much about welcoming people into a community. And I think, I think everyone here needs to be careful about how they other some of the new people coming into this community who are investing, who did choose to be here, and how maybe they do need to just be welcomed in and be brought into the community. Maybe they won't be but maybe it's important to start with not necessarily thinking that they won't want to be part of the community.
0: Okay, and, and I'm going to go ahead and let's, I'm going to make sure everyone has a chance to speak, but I want to just make sure we get as many audience questions as possible. So who is next for a uh, question? Yeah.
12: My name is Ash Moore. Um, I'm not a resident of the Gordon Square neighborhood. I'm actually from Rocky River, so everyone can like boo me if they want. Or, <laughs> I don't know, throw something or whatever. No. I have just more of a comment. First of all, we love the show. Uh, me and my partner are here, and we think it's great. And I guess I just wanted to share that our, our experience of coming into this neighborhood um, primarily revolves around the local LGBT center. Mm-hmm. Um, we come for you know volunteering opportunities. There's you know fun little groups and stuff. And I, we did like an art project with them, and it was great. And um, I just want to say that I think this neighborhood is really awesome because it has that institution that really there isn't something of that magnitude anywhere else in the city, in any of the suburbs, I would say. I mean, if there is, I don't know about it, but I just wanted to say it's great, and we were just talking to a friend about like maybe renting out a space there and having like a little like fiber arts group or something, and just, we're very excited to see where our relationship goes with the community, and thank you for having us. I love that, thank you. <laughs> let's, let's do another,
0: uh, yeah.
10: Hi, Janet Lair, I live on Clifton. I moved from the east to the west side a long time ago, although I originally am from the west side. I lived on Clifton in two different areas, including the Paschke House, who built Don's Lighthouse. Um, and I also taught in Cleveland my entire life, in the Cleveland Public Schools, and I'm very proud to say that. <laughs> it makes me very upset when you talk about tax abatement, and it always falls on the schools, Always. I have never heard anything besides that. And I'm tired of hearing it. Do something other than throwing on the, on the Cleveland Public Schools and then blaming the kids and the teachers because they're falling behind.
0: Let's go to the next question. Or comment. Hi, my
13: name is Rhoda, and I want to say publicly what I told Justin privately. I just met him. And it's so good to have a forum where we actually talk about neighborhoods. Mm. Um, I know downtown is the new growing neighborhood. I heard this story (laughs) earlier in the week on public radio. But we really need some attention paid to the neighborhoods. And, Justin, you did a great job with the podcast, the information, the light that you shared. I work in Glenville. I'm a Healthy Homes Initiative person. We... We had some of the same issues. We still have issues with vacant housing. We have some of the best housing stock in the city of Cleveland, bar none. But it hasn't been invested in. And I know it's expensive, but we need to find a way to save some of the houses in Glenville. Thank you.
0: Let let me me kind of piggyback on that a little bit. And thank you so much for, for coming up and giving your comments. And you know, Tanya, you mentioned the best thing that could happen is that what's happening. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase it completely wrong. <laughs> so but how do we start to see the momentum here spread? How can that happen?
6: Um, well, I think, you know, <clears throat> one thing we've learned here that I hope can be instructive to other neighborhoods is the importance of getting ahead of the curve when it comes to infusing equity into development. So what you don't want to do is start having, and I am going to use the word gentrification because I do identify with that happening. In other words, it's a real term to me. Um, But what you don't want to have happen is that experience of gentrification occurring and prices really going up so high that they could displace people without infusing equity early in the process. So as an example, Right now, um, I and I'm working with the staff at Northwest Neighborhoods, but doing a lot of time thinking about the Cadell neighborhood. So a lot of people wouldn't think of Cadell as an area that's gentrifying. But if we don't infuse an equitable approach into how we revitalize, redevelop, fill those vacant lots in Cadell now, I think that the displacement pressures will be there over time. So I think it's a mix of having the tools to welcome investment while also infusing equity, which, which would be an accompanying set of tools. So I think a neighborhood like glenville or any neighborhood um and, and we've done that to a large extent here with still more work to do
0: bradford
7: go ahead. i just want to reach back just for a moment to touch on the juxtaposition between the the last two questions that were asked right so there was there was this comment about um you know gentrification and growth and is that a bad thing and then it was it was followed by another comment uh there was it was followed by another comment um, in which someone said that they loved coming to this neighborhood from a suburb to engage with a community center that exists here, and we clapped and that 's important and so i won't i won 't boo you I applaud you for coming to this neighborhood and applaud you for for engaging in this community and i, I see you as a, as an opportunity to to recruit you to this neighborhood and i I just I would ask this audience I would ask this team if we would still clap if he drove an audi would would we still be clapping if the person and the individuals who utilize and engage in this community in an honest and in a real way, in an authentic way, made money or dressed nice. I dress nice. I put these shoes because the mayor will get mad at me if I, if I don't, <laughs> right? But I, I just, I think in a community and in a, in a city that has seen over five decades of decline, and with that decline, and I mean population decline, growth, with that decline, uh, deterioration of our infrastructure, of our roads, and in many ways in our civic system, at some point, if we want those things fixed, we need to grow our, our tax base. We need growth, right? And so, you know, I, I would, time that we are saying to people, you don't belong here, I think we all need to sort of pause and reflect and interrogate what, what that statement really means, and that's across the board.
0: Hey, you look familiar. Sandria <laughs> Simmons. Go ahead.
2: So yeah. I thank you for your time. And I just wanted to come up here because I think this is this may be the second time or even third, or fourth time, that I've heard that, you know, what are the positives of gentrification? What are the positives of revitalization? And I just want to say because there are a Bunch of people in here that, especially people that are not my color. <laughs> so I just want to make sure that you know that people that look like me, we don't have time to see if revitalization works or not. We're too busy being moved and displaced out of our homes to figure out if, oh, this business is fixing the roads. Like we want to live in the houses that we have that we bought for 30000 when the streets went. Nobody was coming over here. So that's why you have neighborhoods like Glenville, where I grew up, where there's a decrepit building down the street. Our children are walking in places that don't look pretty. And we're not asking for pretty, we're asking for things to be safe. And you shouldn't have to revitalize and put charcoal gray buildings in order for our children to walk in neighborhoods and go to schools that look pretty like i just I, I don't i don't care if a neighborhood looks pretty we need quality education we need for people to not be shot because while we're standing here a couple months ago somebody got shot up the street a 14 year old kid got shot a couple months ago and the fact that that has not been raised at all in this? any of these conversations is an issue. So when you go back to your neighborhoods, when you go back down the street where you live, I want you to think about the people that actually do live in this neighborhood, who even though there are rents that are $1,500, there are rents that are whatever. We still have to live in these neighborhoods and we still have to live, like this isn't, I I get that it's being gentrified, but this isn't the one-on-be-all, like this, this, this neighborhood is really great, but there's so many, much more that it can be doing and I don't care that you fix the street. There's so much more that can be done and I think that that's your. You should really think about that. And uh, it's it's more than just slapping paint on a building. And there's more than just putting a hair salon in there. Think about the think about the business owners that are actually in your businesses. All these four lease signs. All these new businesses that are being in place. There's uh, there's barely any people of color. And I get that we have a Puerto Rican restaurant next to a Mexican restaurant next to this. Are we only good for restaurants and hair and hair salons and barbers? Shops. Like, we have other skills and businesses. The arts that are being recognized around this area, they don't look like me. They're <laughs> white people, so I just want you to think about that. <laughs> so, yes, yes, I get that revitalization can be positive, but we don't have time to sit around and wonder and wait. <laughs> we don't have time to sit around and wait to see if it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing.
0: thank you thank you okay we okay we have um, we've got a couple more
14: questions okay so former councilman Matt zone hey so first of all congratulations to WCPN for focusing on a very challenging issue um, and, and particularly shining a spotlight on this neighborhood Uh, So, for somebody who spent an entire life in this community, and I'm going to kind of repeat what I said on podcast number three. You know, having grown up at West 61st just a block and a half from where we stand right now, I remember as a young boy how bombed out this neighborhood was. And to see how people who lived in this neighborhood worked really hard to try to lead a renaissance. As I said on the podcast, in the late 60s, with a lot of civil unrest that was going on, there was a lot of white flight that left this community. But when busing occurred in 78, the black and brown population and the white population that had money, they left too. And many people in this room, and I know more than half of the people in this room, uh, for longtime residents, and even the newer residents, we worked really hard in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s just to stabilize the neighborhood and to build the community trust that this was a community that was valued and many people who have since moved into the community, I don't think have that understanding and perspective about how hard it was on the near west side. I'm really proud of the fact that this neighborhood accepted not only one, but two permanent supportive housing projects for the homeless, when many neighborhoods that project was kicked out of. I was really proud that this neighborhood accepted transitional housing for women who were coming out of pre-release facilities in this neighborhood. I'm really proud of the fact that Detroit Shoreway did 300 units of affordable housing on Detroit Avenue to ensure long-term affordability. We tend to focus on the gray buildings and the new development. But for those of us who've lived a lifetime in this neighborhood and knew what it was like, to see right out here in front of SoCotch's bar somebody who was murdered, and I one of the first calls I made in 2002 as a councilman was consoling a family because of the violent crime that was going on. So I would be curious to hear that panelists' perspective on as neighborhoods change and you know I worked many years with people in Ohio City to try to not only increase and build affordable housing but to build inclusive communities and I think that's what we've attempted to do so I don't want to lose fact and people really mischaracterize this neighborhood as a neighborhood that is gentrified because for 40 years there was nothing but poor people here nothing but poor people so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts
8: Matt, thank you for thank you for highlighting that, and I think it's really important that what we're talking about, and and again, in um, many parts of the city, uh, most of the east side that has seen incredible disinvestment. Uh, Matt, we used to joke about the 40-year overnight success of this neighborhood, and um, that's what people see, right? They see when when the neighborhood does have restaurants and businesses and things that people want to come to. But really, revitalization is about making a neighborhood safe. It's about making a neighborhood be a place where homes are being repaired, where vacant lots are... Um, where there are gardens and vacant lots and where there's interest in development. And that is the work that happens every day with the city, with the community development corporations. It's the groundwork uh, that makes a community be a place where people choose it. And we need many more communities in Cleveland that people are choosing. One of the things that we have not talked about, but I think it's worth mentioning because of what you raised, are the middle neighborhoods in our city, right? Places where it does feel good to raise a family. Uh, Old Brooklyn, Lee Harvard, um, neighborhoods that we continuously forget because there isn't a lot of excitement necessarily in those neighborhoods, but those are the neighborhoods where people have stayed in the city. Um, They've been the stalwarts of our community, and those neighborhoods need investment now. And it is really critical that those neighborhoods that often abut the neighborhoods that have gotten really strong, the work that's happening in the city is now to try to encourage the investment that may feel a little bit too much in this neighborhood to go into the other neighborhoods that are adjacent. And so I'm really happy that you raised that. It's really critical that people understand our history and the incredibly long and difficult road it takes to get to the point where you're a little worried, and very understandably so, that the neighborhood may be
6: seeing too much investment. I'll just share a quick, I have a quick Matt Zone story to share. You know, I want to go back to, um, you know, Matt, there's a lot of tangible things. He referenced um, the permanent supportive housing projects that he helped to bring in. We've heard passionate (laughs) advocacy and stories from Raymond Bobgan about the beginnings of the Gordon Square Arts District. We know that all happened with Matt's leadership. A small thing that you might not know about Matt Zone is he passed a, I think, incredibly influential piece of legislation to lower the cost to throw a block party on your block. I kid you not, this is important. This goes back to the intentionality of, while this neighborhood, while we're building it, and it's changing, and we want it to be a diverse and equitable place, we have to know each other. Well, there used to be a lot higher fee if you wanted to throw a block party. You had to get Jersey barriers, you had to hire security, there were all these bureaucratic hurdles. And Matt worked with residents, and I can't remember what the dollar amount is now, but it's almost nothing. There you go. 20 bucks? Okay. So if you want to throw a block party and get to know your neighbors, it's within our reach. And so that's a very small thing, but I think, Matt, that's part of your legacy because it's part of the intentionality of community building combined with the brick-and-mortar work that needs to happen.
0: Okay, we, we've got time for two more questions, so go ahead, ma'am.
15: Thank you. Hi, my name is Chrissy Stonebreaker Martinez. I am the co-director of the Interreligious Task Force on Central America and Colombia, which has been based in this neighborhood for 40 years. And I've lived and played in the near west side for uh, more than 10 years, and I'm um, grateful to be part of this community, and I'm also Mbera descendant. My ancestors, my family, my parents, my mother um, are from what's currently known as Colombia, and I see myself as a guest on this land that is Iroquois, Algonquin, and and speaking, that was unseated <laughs> land, and this place has historically been a place of exchange, a place where people come together, and I think, I know that I'm biased, but I think our baseball team did a little bit better because of a lifting of a little bit of a curse. <laughs> know that Cleveland is being billed as a quote-unquote climate-friendly place and I want to know because all of our panelists right now are in the sort of public-private partnership of government relations what are the concrete things that can be done to prevent further gentrification read displacement that's the definition in the dictionary Not just for people on the near west side and in Gordon Square, but for all of Cleveland, which has experienced 10% inflation and 30% rise in housing costs since the beginning of the pandemic. I'm interested in what can be done to be preventative rather than reactionary because I know that that legislation sounds really beautiful. And thank you, former councilman, for making it easier for us to come together as community members. But I also need Something more concrete, because as our beautiful first panelist and former questionnaire, um, Chandra, just said, we don't have time to wait.
8: Yeah, so I'll speak to a couple very concrete things, and I, I, I agree. I think that we have to be very mindful of what's happening right now. The, the first was the property tax relief I spoke to, because the fact is, for most of our city, we need our property values to increase. We cannot support our schools. We cannot support the kind of investments that need to happen. We want landlords to make our homes lead safe. We want landlords to invest in properties. They can't do that if rents are bottom low. I know that's not Mm -hmm. what you're experiencing here, but it is critical that we have property tax relief so that as, hopefully, housing values do increase in neighborhoods, the people who have been there for an extended amount of time, our elderly residents, people who are living um, at or near the poverty level, that their income, that their property taxes only increase a a small amount. And again, that state-enabling legislation will allow for that. Jenny talked about The most affordable housing that you're going to find in a community is naturally occurring affordable housing. That's rehabbed housing. We have the ability to do that in our neighborhoods. I'm going to pass it to Bradford because I know there's a lot. Uh, Well,
7: I also just heard some comments about uh, climate resilience and climate justice and sustainability. So I'll just make a quick comment and then get back to the affordability question. Um, You know, we are aligning at the city of Cleveland our sustainability work Um, with NOACA, who's thinking about, you know, what decarbonization means uh, as it relates to to federal standards, and so our our new director, um, our new director of sustainability, Sarah O'Keefe, is working really hard to make sure that we're aligning with national best practice. Um, you know, we're also going through a lakefront uh, master planning exercise currently. Uh, today was full of uh, consultant review sessions. And so, uh, you know, that, that one of the key indicators inside of, of that uh, RFP was thinking about climate resilience and sustainability. So I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that. I, I just want to tap into one thing that, that Tanya mentioned about um, uh, appreciation of assets, because there's another side of this coin if I heard, I heard Glenville referenced, I heard a bit um, uh, earlier uh, about the, the east side and the southeast side specifically, mm-hmm. and there is very much a world. Mm-hmm. There's very much a world where there is a home who has been owned, an asset that's been owned for generations that is no longer an asset but is a liability, mm-hmm. yeah. right, is a liability. Yeah, so the, yeah. idea that, uh, uh, the idea that appreciation is a bad thing right there, it feels like a luxury in those communities, because people are leaving and being displaced because they can no longer hold on to this asset that is now uh, is now underwater, right? And so, I want us to make sure that we are we are squaring and balancing what is a certainly a nuanced issue. Um, with what, what can be hyper-gentrification where we're talking about not being able to live in entire communities and the very real lived experience of people who desperately want their homes to appreciate because their assets are no longer valuable. And when the question was asked earlier, was buying your home, did you think about being in uh, 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 an up-and-coming neighborhood? Let's, let's not fool ourselves if you were going to buy your house today and someone told you that your home value was going to be less, significantly less, 10 years from now than the day that you bought it, my guess is you would have a second thought. And so we need to really temper this idea that all appreciation and all investment is a bad thing and recognize that there is a continuum.
6: I want to real quickly also mention, Chrissy referenced something that is very real, which is people are utility cost burdened. So Chrissy, not only um, property taxes or rent burdened, um, we have a real need in Cleveland for, to provide relief for people who are water, water sewer, gas, electri- electrical bill burdened. Um, and there are a lot of programs available, not a lot of time now to explain them all. Um, 211, First Call for Help, does an amazing job. Connecting people to those resources, and they are they are ready to go. They're out there.
0: As we begin to close, I want to thank my guests for joining this conversation. Councilperson Jenny Spencer, thanks so much for the time. Bradford Davie from the City of Cleveland, thanks to you as well. And Tanya Manas from Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, thank you. Well, we have come to the end of this community conversation about the transformation happening in Cleveland's Gordon Square neighborhood and a wrap-up of Ideastream Public Media's latest podcast series, Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood. I want to say thanks again to our guests tonight and to all of you for your great input. We finally warmed up and the ice was broken. A special thanks to Sean Watterson and Tony Cross here at the Happy Dog (laughs) for being great hosts. And to the whole staff here for serving as amazing Tater Tots. (laughs) Uh, To Phil Kidd of Northwest Neighborhoods for co-sponsoring those free Tater tater Tots. Also from Northwest Neighborhoods, big, big thanks to, again, Evelyn Smith, who managed the community engagement for the podcast. To Josh Forbes for not only bringing over the chairs, but so many other things. Emily Bischoff. Uh, Bridget, Cat Marquez, and Adam Stalder. This Sound of Ideas community tour was produced by me, Drew Mazzius, Rachel Rood, John Nungester, and Mike McIntyre. As COVID-19 numbers continue to remain at manageable levels, we hope to do more community events just like this in 2023. To find out more and check out previous tour stops, visit our website, ideastream.org slash community tour. And for more discussions on all manner of public affairs topics. Tune into the Sound of Ideas weekdays at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. on 89.7 WKSU or subscribe to the Sound of Ideas podcast. I'm Justin Glanville. Thanks so much for listening and have a great night, everyone. <laughs> Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood, is an Ideastream public media podcast. It's written and produced by me, Justin Glanville, and edited by Mike McIntyre, Ideastream's executive editor. Sound design and production on this episode are by Drew Mazius and Al Dalhausen. Special thanks also to John Nungesser. Our Director of Strategic Content Initiatives is Natalie Pillsbury. Mark Rosenberger is our Chief of Content. Visit us online at ideastream.org slash Inside the Bricks. There's a lot of ways to connect on the site. Like you can sign up for a newsletter with extra stories and thoughts that didn't make the podcast. Or you can take our audience survey to tell us what you think and let us know about things we're missing or that you want us to talk about in the future. Thanks for joining me on this podcast journey. Look out for more great content at ideastream.org.